Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, and ho, 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 it is December, this is the first podcast of the home stretch of the NFL season. I am Santa Claus, and I'm here with uh, one of my faithful elves, Miles Simmons, this, this week, and we are going to have one rollicking podcast. Now, we're going to be joined a little bit later on by my two friends from The Athletic, Mike Sando and Dan Pompey. They've written a really interesting book called The Athletic 100. It rates the top 100 football players of all time. I have some issues with their rankings, and I guarantee you, if I made a ranking of the top 100, you'd have more than a few issues. You'd have many, many issues probably at about 99 of the of the 100. But anyway, uh, we're going to be joined a little bit later by Mike and Dan. Um, Miles Simmons, I think we are going to have to discuss quite a bit about a name at the beginning of this year that I'm just telling you, neither of us had ever heard of. His name is Jake Browning, and today he rules the NFL roost. As a matter of fact, uh, basically, uh, entering this new NFL week, everybody's saying, who is Jake Browning? How did that happen Monday night where he goes in and outduels Trevor Lawrence, a now wounded Trevor Lawrence, in a game that probably had as much impact on the playoff race as any game other than the Philadelphia-San Francisco game coming out of this weekend Miles Simmons, give me initial thoughts on Bengals 34, Jaguars 31. Well, first of all, Peter, I got to correct the record here. I have heard of Jake Browning before, right? I've I've been living out here on the West Coast for several years. So as a Washington quarterback, you know, he played very, very well for that program. I had heard of him before. Did I expect him to play, I mean, a better game than Joe Burrow? played by the numbers this year? No, certainly not. And especially not against that Jacksonville defense, which has been right. I mean, the Jacksonville defense has not been bad this year by any means. And they've been getting better. Josh Allen made another great play last night. He's been playing very, very well. So I certainly did not expect to see that version of Jake Browning. And, you know, you just got to tip your cap to him and to the Bengals for getting him ready to play. I think, and Zach Taylor has said sort of a version of this before, but Jake Browning getting all of the snaps in training camp because Joe Burrow was dealing with the calf injury, I'm sure that is certainly coming into play at this point now in the season where it's not just like he's throwing these dudes for the first time. They practiced all of August together, so they have 
a little bit of built-in chemistry. And when Jamar Chase catches 11 of 12 passes thrown to him, and the only target that he doesn't catch was a perfectly thrown ball right at his chest, I mean, that says something about the chemistry that those two guys have. And so Cincinnati's not out of it by any means. And it's really because of the good play of their backup quarterback in Browning. I'll tell you the one thing, Miles, I was thinking of, and I saw this, I don't know, Monday, Sunday night, Monday morning, one o'clock, one fifteen, as I'm kind of coming to a close on writing my column. I looked at the AFC playoff standings right now, and I'm going to update this uh, with the results of last night's game. But but just think of this: five, six, and seven right now, today. Entering week 14 of the NFL season. Pittsburgh 5, Cleveland 6, Indianapolis 7. Those three teams would be in right now. Look at the next three. 8, Houston. 9, Denver. 10, Cincinnati. And I'd even go 11, Buffalo. And I just think about that for a second. And I say, the four teams on the outside looking in, I would say, I'd rather see all of those teams in the playoffs than any of those teams, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Indianapolis. I mean, that's it's such a weird, weird thing, but I think it goes to show a couple of things right now. Number one, the power of a backup quarterback coached well. You talk mm-hmm. about Jake Browning, that guy has Brian Callahan, the offensive coordinator, and Zach Taylor, the head coach, has fingerprints all over him. You know, you look at what's happened in Indianapolis. Shane Steichen, Gardner Minshew. Minshew is probably the backup quarterback in the NFL that I'd like most to have on my team. So that was that was a really good opportunity. And the crazy thing is, Joe Flacco actually gave the, the Browns a chance on Sunday in Los Angeles until he threw a yeah. bad interception late. Now... Yeah. We'll see about Mitchell Trubisky. He's going to have to play for a little while. Don't have a lot of faith in him. And so we'll see. But Jake Browning right now gives the Bengals an absolute fighting chance. And, Miles, I'm going to give you right now what I think is another really interesting part of the AFC playoff equation. So you got the Bengals right there, 6-6. Six and six. They're on the outside looking in. But look at their next three weeks. Colts at home. Vikings at home. At Pittsburgh. So, and again, I'm not saying they're going 3-0. and I don't even know that they'll go 2-1. and But every one of those games with what we saw with Jake Browning last night is a, or as we record this on Tuesday, every one of those games is a winnable game for the Bengals. And how shocking would it be if we entered the real home stretch of this season and we saw that the Cincinnati Bengals had a fighting chance to make the playoffs without Joe Burrow for the second half of the season. Yeah, I mean, that, that would be a real shock, honestly. It's one of those things, though, Peter, where I look at it and you wonder if and when the clock is going to strike midnight on Jake Browning, right? Because, I mean, how well did Josh Dobbs start playing once – he got to Minnesota, and it's not like there was very much film on him in that particular offense, right? I mean, yeah, he'd been playing for the Arizona Cardinals all season long, but 
once you get to Minnesota, then you're playing with different guys, different personnel and all that different scheme. It becomes one thing. And then, I mean, you saw the disaster last Monday night against the Chicago bears, right? I mean, four picks and not all of them were his fault, but when you start to see those kinds of things, it's like, all right, well, the carriage is turning a bit into a pumpkin here. So Justin Jefferson coming back, that's going to be maybe a boon to uh, that offense. You would like to think, and we'll see if Dobbs or Mullins ends up being the starter this week. But when it, as it relates to Browning, he's been there for a while. So he understands that offense. Again, he's got the practice time with those different receivers. He's got guys in Jamar Chase and T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd that are as good as any group of receivers in the National Football League. Joe Mixon's still running effectively. So there is an argument to be made that that offense with a backup quarterback can do some things and can make some noise. But I don't know. I Whenever you're talking about a backup quarterback, usually he's a backup for a reason, and there's a ceiling there. And I, I wonder... If we're going, if that was the ceiling last night, or if we're still going to see, you know, Jake Browning continue to push his head up against that glass and raise it that much higher. So I want to just get to one other point that really occurred to me in the wake of the Monday night game this week of the Cincinnati Bengals with the undrafted Jake Browning putting up 31, 34 points. Uh, and really outdueling Trevor Lawrence. And this, I think, is something that has kind of bugged me most of this season. And that is, and it has to do, because all things always come back to the New York Jets. So this has <laughs> to do with the fact that everything with the Jets has been about the disaster at quarterback after in the first series of the year, Aaron Rodgers was lost with a torn Achilles. So why am I thinking of the Jets in the wake of last night? I'm thinking of the Jets because as we look at what happened last night, we sort of look at a situation that is mindful of what happens when a team loses the franchise quarterback. Does it sort of collapse like a house of cards? Uh, Does it lay in the corner in a fetal position and say, help me, mommy, help me? What exactly do you do? And the reason I bring up the New York Jets is that right now, the New York Jets uh, have, without Aaron Rodgers, in the last 88 offensive drives, have scored four touchdowns. And that is the height of incompetence. It just is. The players could coach themselves and be better than how they're playing this year. And then I look back to last year when Nathaniel Hackett, the offensive coordinator, was in Denver. And look, I don't mean to say Nathaniel Hackett can't coach. I don't mean to say that he shouldn't have a job. I don't mean, I'm just simply stating what the facts say. And what the facts say is that Nathaniel Hackett was a coach for Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay. Rodgers loved him. It boosted him to get a job in Denver as the head coach. He got fired before the season was over because the offense was an abject disaster. Mm -hmm. And so for two years in a row now, with a quarterback, supposedly, Russell Wilson. Now without a quarterback, you know, whoever is going to play for the Jets now, uh, disasters on offense both years. And it says something to me 
about coaching. And it says to me, give me Brian Callahan. Give me Zach Taylor. It says to me, do not give me Nathaniel Hackett. Does that hit you at all in any way, Miles Simmons? Well, I think that there was plenty of evidence last year that Nathaniel Hackett had a lot of trouble with designing and calling an offense by himself. And, you know, I mean, we go back to Sean Payton's comments, which were, they were what they were, right? But I think that when you look at- They were almost fortune telling in in retrospect. Right. Yes. And, you know, people took issue with them. And I think if it were you or me that said it, it certainly would not have been a big deal. But when you're in the coaching fraternity, it becomes one. Right. But it's not like uh, there wasn't evidence for that, you know, and it just was one of those things that was said publicly. And then you see what's now happened with the New York Jets. And I go back to this, Peter, like more than one thing can be true at once. Right. Quarterback play, not been very good. Okay. Offensive line play, also a mess. All right. And they've got injuries and all those different things. But the offensive coordinator in Nathaniel Hackett, he doesn't seem to be doing a very good job either of trying to put players in position for success. And you just cited that touchdown statistic, which is just ridiculous. I mean, this is the NFL in the year of our Lord 2023. And you can't score more touchdowns than that. The game is designed for you to be able to score touchdowns. Like it is an offensive league. It's a passing league and they can't, they can't do it. And so that I think does not reflect well on Nathaniel Hackett by any means. And, you know, if Aaron Rodgers weren't going to be that team's quarterback in 2024, would there be any question that they need to move on from offensive coordinator? I don't think so. Look, I, I, I don't know what the New York Jets would do if Aaron Rodgers was not going to be the quarterback opening day 2024. But I have a sneaking suspicion that for the second year in a row, Nathaniel Hackett would be getting fired in December. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. A lot of it still is to be written with the Jets, but it just really bothers me that, you know, for the second year in a row, we're seeing a guy who was a wonder kind and you know, he just can't coach his players to win. He can't coach his players to score. I mean, come on. It's the evidence is overwhelming. It's just, it's kind of sad, honestly, but anyway, miles, we're going to take a break. And on the other side, we're going to come back with five quick points. One, are the Eagles vulnerable? Two, are the Niners the best team in football? Three, Is Brock Purdy the best bargain in football? Number four, I've got a very nifty note about the playoffs and a matchup that you might see for the third time in 21 days on Wild Card Weekend. And then finally, can Kansas City get out of the death spiral and be the Kansas City that everybody wants to be? We'll come back. We're going to talk about those things. And we're going to talk about the Green Bay debut for two famous people, Patrick Mahomes and Taylor Swift. We'll be right back. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. 
Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. So, Miles, the Philadelphia Eagles, my belief coming out of Sunday is pretty simple. The same way that I didn't think the Dallas Cowboys were a hopeless, hapless, worthless team in week five after the 49ers beat them 42 to 10. I don't think it's over for the Eagles after they lose 42 to 19. For crying out loud, they're 10 and 2. So <clears throat> I don't view this as as a as a TKO or anything like that. Teams lose badly. I mean the 2003 Patriots, Buffalo 31, Patriots 0, Patriots win the Super Bowl. I don't know. I, I just think these games should not be made too much of. And and look. The only thing that really bothered me in this game for Philadelphia, and I mean the only thing, is that their defense just, after the first two series, didn't do anything to Brock Purdy. And that defensive front is too good to be a non-impact player. To, for, in four quarters, to have two sacks for four yards uh, and to consistently not be able to get pressure on him. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I'd agree with you. I mean, you mentioned the record 10 and 2. What's that remind you of, right? Reminds you're driving. You know, you got your hands on the steering wheel. They should be at 10 and 2. And the Eagles, right now, they're still in the driver's seat <laughs> yeah. for that number one overall seat if they just keep winning. And, you know, they have not necessarily been overwhelming all season long, but the thing that the Eagles still have is multiple ways to beat you. And whenever you have an offensive line that is as good as the Eagles is, and, you know, you look at their defensive line, and as you just mentioned, they were not up to their standard in Sunday's game, but usually they are better than that, right? And what they can usually do is get pressure with four. So I don't think that this is the end of the world either. Now, if they go down to Dallas and they still lay an egg, then we might have a different conversation, but I I don't really expect them to do that. It is one game. It's something that, you can get yourself over. And over the last two years, I mean, this team just has not really lost football games that often. So <clears throat> I think that they're going to be okay. Right. I really do. It, it's just one game. It is not necessarily the end of everything. And yeah, there are some warning signs, but those are things that I, I believe can be corrected and that the Eagles can still make it to the top of the NFC at the end of the season. My biggest warning sign would be 76 points allowed in the last two games against Buffalo Mm -hmm. and San Francisco Uh, going into Dallas, which clearly can score, score, score. And I, I guess I would look at this game coming up, Miles, and basically think of two points. One, Dak Prescott's really hot right now. They need to put pressure on him. And what Dak has done very well is move you know, it was funny. Before this year, 
I thought, I think a lot of people thought, well, Dak's got to really get to that next level. To get to the next level, he's got to move better in and around the pocket. And he's done that. Mike McCarthy has really set it up so that he's now become a guy who throws more on the run, who gets out of the pocket. So I like what I've seen with that. The Eagles have just got to bother him more than they have bothered the last two weeks, Josh Allen and Brock Purdy. But the second thing in this game I think is really interesting is, you know, coming out of that game, DeAndre Swift got banged up. DeAndre Swift is essential in this game for the Philadelphia Eagles to win, I believe. This is a guy who I believe is a better running back than Miles Sanders was last year for him. But he's got to be healthy enough to be an impact player. I'd say give him 20 or 23 touches. Keep the ball out of Dak Prescott's hands Sunday in Dallas. Who do you like in that one, Miles? Well, I think I like Dallas. And one of the reasons is the Cowboys have just started playing really, really, really well at home, Peter. They've won their last 14 games at home, which is just not necessarily something you would think of that AT&T Stadium is going to be a big home field advantage for them. You get visiting fans coming there. You know, you want to go to Jerry's World and Dallas is a decent place to go visit. I know that stadium's really in Arlington, but you know, that's not necessarily a place, at least for the first however many years of its existence, that you thought, oh, yeah, that's got a big home field advantage. But for whatever reason, over the last couple of years with Mike McCarthy, they have just turned that place into somewhere you don't really want to go play. So, excuse me, I, I think that that's going to be a factor. And really, Jordan Love, I think, is the only quarterback right now who's playing about as well as Dak Prescott. And I say that with all due respect to Brock Purdy, who also is playing great right now. But that offense and the skill players they've got and the offensive line they've got is just at a different level than most other teams. And Dak Prescott is playing out of his mind over these last few weeks. And so given all of those different things and the problems defensively that we've seen from Philadelphia over the last couple of weeks, even though I just said they're correctable, Against this divisional opponent, these guys know each other very well. I I can see the Cowboys winning this game for sure. I kind of like them too, Miles. Let's move to San Francisco. The 49ers right now, after going three losses in a row, scoring 17-17-17, you know, have now basically totally turned around their season. You know, whereas they averaged 17 points a game, they've almost doubled it. You know, they're averaging 33 a game in their last four. So what's the difference? I believe the difference is extraordinarily simple. You know, the return to health of both Debo Samuel and Trent Williams. And right now, Miles, I wrote this in my column this week. I think Debo Samuel, he gets some competition from DK Metcalf. But I think in the three most important things for a receiver... In 2023 National Football League terms, in my opinion, three most important traits. And I'm just going to assume for the moment that everyone can catch. I'm not going to put hands in there, even though there are varying degrees of how good the guy's hands are. But Debo Samuel right now, size, speed, quickness is the best receiver in football. And I know there are other guys who've got better numbers who do this, do that. But Debo Samuel is a freight train rolling down the tracks when he gets going. He's not afraid of contact. 
He's fast. And he's also got the ability for Kyle Shanahan to put him in those orbit motions in the backfield that basically really confuse a defense. And I remember talking to Mike McDaniel a little bit about this. You know, there's one thing that's really weird about Canadian football. It's that receivers can come into motion toward the line of scrimmage at full speed. So you can time a play if you're a quarterback in Canadian football where a receiver is in full sprint when the ball is snapped. You can't really do that in the NFL. However, what teams are doing now, smart teams, Mike McDaniel, Kyle Shanahan now, you're seeing more and more of this orbit motion, which allows these guys to go into motion and have a full head of steam, maybe not going directly at the line of scrimmage, but they are in a full head of steam by the time they reach, uh, by the time the ball is snapped and they turn up field. So anyway, I'm just saying that to me, Debo Samuel is incredibly important to this offense. Look, they've got state-of-the-art guys all over that offense. And right now they have to stay healthy. And if they do, I mean, I don't know how you argue with the fact they're the best team. But Miles, I'll just, I'll raise one point about Brock Purdy that I think has been a little bit minimized. And look, there are some people who think that Brock Purdy is great. There's some people who think he's a product of the system. Some people who think he's overrated because he plays for Shanahan, all, all that stuff. I get it. But I think there's one thing he's shown me this year. And, and I'd say it's a combination of fearlessness and accuracy. He's not afraid to make any throw. To me, the throws that he has made that have been most impressive are the layered throws. Okay, so for those who might say, oh, it's a, it's a Tony Romo cliche. What is a layered throw? It's the throw where you throw it over somebody who is directly in front of your intended receiver. And most guys don't want to do that. They want, a, they want a clear path to the receiver, and that's where they're going to make their throw. <clears throat> but Brock Purdy is confident in his timing and in his touch to be able to make those throws. So that's one thing he's shown us this year that I think almost completes the repertoire. And, and Miles, I guess I would ask you, I mean, where is he in the quarterback pantheon? Does he belong in the MVP debate? I think he is above, I don't want to call him above average, just above average. He's good. I mean, he's really good. He is the best quarterback in a Kyle Shanahan system that we've seen aside from Matt Ryan, right? And, you know, there were plenty of quarterbacks that played in that system before Matt Ryan and since Matt Ryan, and none of them have been as effective or is good really on a play-to-play basis, game-to-game basis, is Brock Purdy. Brock Purdy is leading the league in passer rating right now at 116.1. That's not a bad mark. You know, you can't just sit here and say, well, he's only a product of the system, because if he were only a product of the system, then why did Jimmy Garoppolo not play as well as this guy, right? Why did they have to hide Jimmy Garoppolo in the playoffs when they ended up going to the Super Bowl? I mean, we've seen Brock Purdy do a lot of different things, and I think you got to give him his due. However, I also think that he is, in part, a product of the system because 
Aren't we all a product of our circumstances? I mean, there probably is no better situation for a quarterback to be in than being surrounded by, you know, Trent Williams and Debo Samuel and Christian McCaffrey and George Kittle and Brandon Ayuk and the list goes on. I mean, so yeah, that's a factor in it, but he still has to go out there and execute. And to this point, we've not seen a quarterback with Kyle Shanahan in San Francisco play this well. So I think that you can give credit to everybody here, and but I, I don't think we need to. Leave, we should leave out Brock Purdy in that conversation by any means. Yeah, I, I wrote my column this week. This is the week, the one-year anniversary. Monday was actually the date. This is the this is the week, the one-year anniversary of Brock Purdy taking over for Jimmy Garoppolo in the first quarter against the Miami Dolphins. And everybody thinking at that time that the season's over for San Francisco. Well, yeah. since that moment, he's played 21 games. His passer rating in those 21, including playoffs, his passer rating in those games is 114.1, which is the best in football since December 1, 2022. So I think at some point... Um, People will stop looking at him as, yeah, he's played pretty well, but he's in the Shanahan system too. This guy's one of the best quarterbacks in football. Every week he proves it. At some point, we're going to take the restrictor plates off the opinions on Brock Purdy. And we're just going to say he's really friggin' good. Okay, let's get to a couple of other points as we um, as we get ready for week 14 in the NFL. i just give you a weird little note. And this note really interests me. So, as of now, if the playoffs started today, which of course they do not, but if the playoffs started today, one of the wild card games would be Minnesota at Detroit. The interesting thing is, Minnesota and Detroit play in weeks 16 and 18. So, if they play in weeks 16, 18, and 19. And if their game is on Saturday of Wild Card Weekend, it will mean that they will have played each other three times in 21 days. Now, if that sort of looks like it might happen later on this month, I'm going to call the Elias Sports Bureau and I am going to ask, Has any have any two teams ever played Basically, three times in a three-week span. I, I cannot believe that this ever would have happened before. I just think it's kind of one of those weird little notes I'd really like to see happen. Can you imagine you're the coaches of Detroit and Minnesota preparing for each other three times in three weeks? It's just, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. But anyway, Miles, I don't know why I bring that up. I just kind of think it's cool. I mean, it is kind of cool, but Peter, I don't think it's going to happen, man. I mean, I think you've got two teams that are on the rise in some ways in that NFC playoff race and the Rams and then also the Packers. And then we got to see what happens with Josh Dobbs or Nick Mullins going forward, even though Justin Jefferson is coming back. I mean, like, I think I said it here just a minute ago, like that, that clock was striking midnight on Dobbs, man, against the Bears. And that is a factor yeah, in the yeah. way that Kevin O'Connell yeah. is going to, is going to choose his quarterback for the, the coming week and, you know, going forward. So 
<laughs> we'll see if it happens. I mean, it was weird last year when Baltimore and Cincinnati played two weeks in a row. I mean, but that's not, you know, from the regular season into the postseason. But that is not three games in 21 days. I mean, that's that's crazy. You don't see that in football very often at all, just because that's not usually the way the schedule works. So it would certainly be interesting to see. But, I mean, Detroit could also knock Minnesota out of it if they beat them in two of those three games, right? It's – I think you're right. I think that Detroit – Detroit might knock Minnesota out of the possibility of that happening, quite honestly. Yeah. But anyway, we'll see what happens. Um, Miles, my last topic, and, and for all of those who live in the state of Wisconsin or who inhabit Packer Nation and want to hear three full segments on Jordan Love, my apologies. <laughs> um, and, and if we had a two-hour podcast I'd give you a full segment on Jordan Love because I'm damn excited. And as I told somebody on Sunday, I said, you know, I knew there was a reason I picked the Packers to make the playoffs and got about 30 emails from people who said, you're out of your effing mind. The Green Bay Packers are in for a long rebuild. And after six weeks, it certainly looked like that. But out of that game on Sunday, I prefer actually to talk about the Kansas City Chiefs, and I'll tell you why. Miles, offensive points for Kansas City over the last five games, 90. And that averages out to 18 points a game. So we now are officially on high alert for the Kansas City offense. And I'll tell you, I covered them in game two of that stretch in Frankfurt when they scored 21, but only 14 of the points were offensive points. They scored a defensive touchdown that day. And I remember sitting with Andy Reid and he goes, listen, after the game, we're just young. We're going to grow. I'm not worried. I bet Andy Reid might be starting to get worried right now. And the reason is that I thought, and I think everybody thought that by now we would have seen Rasheed Rice uh, or Sky Moore really emerge as that guy who is going to be the guy to be the 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 guy next to Travis Kelsey who uh, you know can be a real real good threat down the field. And look. Rasheed Rice has eight catches each of the last two weeks. But the fact is, if you have 16 catches for 171 yards, you're basically 10.7 yards a carry or a, a catch. That's not what Rasheed Rice needs to be in this offense. So to me, Miles, I'm going, I'm not saying I'm going necessarily on red alert. They put up 31 at Vegas um, and in a tough place to play. So I still think they can get it back. But what's your 30-second review of the Kansas City offense right now and whether you're officially worried? I, I've been worried, Peter. I mean, this is who they are. We're in December. And so once you get to December and your pass catchers are not reliable, whether it is just catching the passes or being in the place where you need to be when the ball is supposed to come, 
they're not reliable. This has become an off-season problem, Peter, that they cannot solve in the rest of this season. Now, that being said, AFC is open enough and that defense is good enough that they could still, you know, get on a playoff run. They're, they're going to win the AFC West. You know, there's no real team that's going to compete with them there, I don't think. Um, and they're going to make it to the postseason easily. But this might be a spot where Patrick Mahomes has to go win a playoff game on the road for the first time. So we'll see what happens, but this is who they are. This is what this offense is going to be. The defense may be able to help them overcome it, but they just don't have enough reliable pass catchers. And that thing about Rush Rice that you're talking about, you know, where he's got that many catches and that many yards, so many of his catches are coming behind the line of scrimmage or at the line of scrimmage. He's not going down the field. So, I mean, when you can't rely on asking him, they're asking him. They're asking him to just catch the ball in space and do something. Yes, yes. Y- you exactly. know, and and that I I I totally agree with you. Look at the big plays. So many of the big plays of Tyreek Hill. <clears throat> the ball is forty-five yards in the air, and right. Tyreek Hill is beating somebody by four steps, and he's got a touchdown. Well, that even, is even... what Kansas City lacks, and it's. Even last year with Juju Smith-Schuster, I mean, it's not like Smith-Schuster was, you know, going all the way down, but he had those intermediate routes, right? Or he found the soft spot in the zone and could sit and Mahomes could find him. He was good on the jazz plays, right? Where it's all of a sudden Mahomes is doing the things that he needs to do. So I I just feel like if from that perspective, that's that's a big issue that Kansas City is somehow going to have to solve. And I don't know that they can. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Miles, good stuff. We're going to get to our guests now. Dan Pompey, Mike Sando, they wrote a book called The Football 100. I always love when smart people do a rating. And I love it because we all don't agree. And I don't agree with a lot of their uh, rankings. But it's interesting, and I think they create and craft some good arguments for how they have ranked these players. Let's hear from Mike Sando and Dan Pompey on their book, The Athletic 100. Happy to welcome Mike Sando and Dan Pompey of The Athletic. 
uh, recently contributed contributed quite heavily to the Football 100. It's the athletics book covering uh, the, and there it is right behind Mike Sando, covering the top 100 players of all time, which I'm sure everybody who reads this is going to agree with every pick. So we'll just have a short little discussion because nobody will have any any argument about, you know, for instance, uh, you know, not having Larry Fitzgerald among your top 100 players, <laughs> which we certainly will discuss. Oh, but my gosh. Just just for um, first of all, welcome, guys. Thanks for doing it. Good to be with you, Peter. And, you know, I don't even agree with all of my my hundred picks. So, uh, oh. I, you know, we're, we're ready. We're ready. Okay, good. I, I do, we there's no way. I mean, there's there's 150 people that should be on the list. Wouldn't you wouldn't you agree, Peter? There's probably 150 people that could be in a top 100. Of course. And yeah. look, I've done these lists before. I yeah. wrote one of these books in uh, <laughs> 1990 for Sports oh. Illustrated, and look, there there was about one tenth of the amount of chatter and palaver out there in 1990 than there is 33 years later. (laughs) But when I had Otto Graham and Don Hudson at the very top, uh, people just thought I had lost my mind, but we'll get into that. Let's, what I'm going to do first of all is I'm going to give people the top 10 and then I'm going to explain, I'm going to let you guys explain the criteria, who voted, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, your top 10, the Athletics' top 10 in the football 100, the 100 best players of all time. Number one, Tom Brady. Number two, Jim Brown. Number three, Jerry Rice. Number four, Lawrence Taylor. Number five, Reggie White. Number six, Joe Montana. Seven, Peyton Manning. Eight, Walter Payton. Nine, Johnny Unitas. 10, Dick Butkus, and then we get into a few more old-timers. Otto Graham is 11, Don Hudson uh, is 13, 13. and then we have uh, Deacon Jones at 16. So, but we will get into a lot of, I've got four very specific things that, that I would like to talk about and I'd like to ask you guys about. But first, I don't know which one of you want to take this question, but give me the criteria uh, of how you set up the top 100. I can do it, Dan, if you want. Okay. You know, Go, Mike. What you say was about two, three years ago, the Athletics started a project where we had, at that time, Ed Bouchette was on our staff at the Athletic. He's since retired, but a Hall of Long-time Fame. Long-time Steeler uh, beat yeah. guy. Yeah. 40 years, you know, and so uh, Dan and I and and Ed, and there might have been a couple others on there uh, where we picked a list of 100 for what was going to be just a project in the athletic. We were going to unveil them, a feature story on each one, start at number 100 and and go all the way through. So we did that. And that one, we really, Dan and I probably wouldn't have agreed with that uh, as much as we agreed with the final one, because from there, we were going to turn it into a book and Dan and I got a little bit more discretion to tweak the list as we wanted. Now, also in that couple year period, Tom Brady went and won a Super Bowl with Tampa Bay. So that helped us, you know, I think we had Jim Brown number one before that, right, Dan? That's accurate. Yes. But Jim Brown, but we sort of felt like, okay, 
Tom Brady leaves the Belichick equation and wins right away with Tampa? I mean, these guys hadn't won anything. I know they had a good roster, but they were a 40% winner over the last seven, eight years before. So that elevated him up. Uh, Dan and I met, you know, tweaked some things, moved some people around. We decided in the end, let's put Patrick Mahomes on there somewhere towards the bottom because we had to account for his career. He was winning Super Bowls with teams that weren't great on defense. And and so, you know, incomplete career, but we felt fine betting on him. So that's probably how, uh, in a nutshell, how it came down. I think our initial list was probably just, hey, let's look at see who's in the Hall of Fame. Let's see who's a current player that should be talked about. And so you start with a much smaller list than, uh, you know, than looking at every player in the history of the league, right? And, and we tried to kind of honor that initial list as much as we could. Obviously, as Mike said, we we tweaked some things. But the initial list, we also had uh, Jeff Duncan from uh, New Orleans Times picking you now. He was on our staff at the yeah. time. He, he was a voter. Lisa Wilson, uh, who was on our staff, was a voter. And... Um, yeah, we, we tried to honor it, but we obviously changed some things. Uh, Mike did a, a great study about wide receivers that kind of helped us uh, put things in perspective. Uh, we ended up uh, moving up Julio Julio Jones, I should say, uh, far on our list uh, from a guy I don't think he was, was even on our initial list, and uh, that was probably yeah. an oversight. So, well, yeah, we ended up with – I'll give you the people the breakdown here too, Peter. So in the end of the 100, there's 19 quarterbacks, okay? So Troy Aikman was probably the 20th. He didn't make it. Dan wrote about him. We wrote about him as one of the guys we kind of wished would have been on there. We had 14 running backs, okay? We had nine wide receivers. So, like, I believe that Larry Fitzgerald probably is a top 10 receiver. I think he's right there, right in that mix. And you could say he's five if you wanted to. I wouldn't argue uh we had nine corners we had seven offensive tackles seven defensive ends seven defensive tackles seven middle linebackers now we're down to like six tight ends right now jason kelsey probably should be on it just just seeing a couple more years we'd probably put him on there there's only three guards three safeties you run out of some of these players in different positions so um you know, that's probably something to have in mind, too. Positional importance, right? It's hard to go over some of these quarterbacks. It's hard to take the 15th best quarterback off and put on the eighth best safety, right? A little bit. I think you're right about that. The one thing I noticed when I looked over the list is that I was really happy you had Anthony Munoz as the top offensive lineman because I think you know, my, the story I always tell people is that I uh, I covered the Bengals. That was my first job in the NFL, uh, first job covering an NFL team in 1984. And I'll never forget one day walking by Jim McNally's office. He was the offensive line coach. It was a Monday at the facility. And look, you know, not to play, those were the days from all in the family. But, I mean, in those days... You could just walk down the hall, stick your head into an assistant coach's office and say, hey, got a second, you know, and yeah, a and, so, and so I, I was walking by McNally's office and said, hey, Peter. So I went in there and he goes, he goes, you know, yesterday, uh, Anthony Munoz played a perfect game. And I've never seen it before, ever in my life, in all my years in football, but I'm grading him and I have no downgrades the entire game. 
Nobody, it's never happened. So awesome. You, I'm, I'm going to tell you a related story to that. So remember Tom Lavat, the great line coach? Of course, yeah. So I was covering the Seahawks on the beat when Walter Jones was playing. And one day, Tom Lavat, back then, we didn't walk into Tom's office, but it was much less uh, formal. We'd always just walk from the practice bubble back to the facility informally, just shooting the breeze. Tom Lavat goes, you know, in all my careers of grading offensive linemen, I've never given a perfect grade until this week. It was Walter Jones. <laughs> he had no. And so, yeah. you know, I made sure Walter, I mean, Walter was going to be on there anyway, but there's very few guys that are have the ability to do something like that at that level, at that type of position. And I think we hopefully accounted for, obviously, Munoz is at the top. I, I believe that. But I think we've got a good group of tackles on there. You know, the one thing I was going to say is that, and you talk about the, uh, how you do the, you know, how you try to make it as fair as possible for every position. I thought it was, and, and first of all, I have to say that as somebody who's done this before, I could hand a list of, if I made a list of 100, I could hand my list to anybody and they would say, how the hell could you do this? The one, there's three specific things. And one is having one offensive lineman in the top 35. You do have a good representative list of offensive linemen, but you only have one in the top 35. Do you have an issue? Either one of you have an issue with that? Yeah, you know, I, I would say you have a good argument there. I mean, um, a lot of the offensive linemen, I believe, who you would put in the top 35 who aren't, are players from bygone eras, right? Yeah. Uh, you're talking about Jim Parker. You're talking about Forrest Gregg. Uh, you're talking about players who – we didn't necessarily know the same way we know Walter Jones or Anthony Munoz. So um, there was kind of that era bias, which, which is something that was a real struggle with this. You know, Peter, you said in, in the book that you contributed to, you had Otto Graham and Don Hudson won too. And, you know, I, I don't think you can say that was crazy. Uh, I think for many, many years, Otto Graham was considered the greatest player in NFL history. And it, it all kind of changed uh, in, in the last, whatever, 30, 40 years. Um, and and yeah. as Mike said, we, we had Jim Brown number one, too, who's another guy from a bygone era. I think we you know, probably Dan, had... I, re- I should, I should, let me interrupt you. I should correct myself because John oh, Hanna, you had at 27. Yeah. So that's two correct. in the top 35. So that's my error. But I do think, I think what you're saying right now is exactly right. You know, I do think that it's hard when either you haven't seen a player play or he played so long ago, it's hard to say he was better. Like for years, I don't do this anymore, but for years I would argue with people who said Jerry Rice is better than Don Hudson. And look, I personally would not put Jerry Rice ahead of Don Hudson because Don Hudson played in – Played for 11 years, and when he retired, the NFL was 26 years old at that time. And when he retired, he had three times as many catches for three times as many touchdowns for three times as many yards as anybody 
who ever played in, you know, when he, when he retired and everybody will say, well, look, it, it wasn't a passing league then. And I said, I understand. And I always say two things, Don Hudson, when, when people say, you know, he couldn't have played in the nineties or whatever. I mean, Don Hudson twice won the sec track championship hundred yard dash. So he ran the hundred and nine, seven. Which oh yeah, a lot of receivers today who cannot run a hundred in nine seven. I'll tell you that much. But I there's totally that. Agree. There's that, and the fact that you know his record for touchdowns, receiving touchdowns, was not matched until Steve Largent did it. Uh, you know, basically thirty five years later, and so you know, or I'm sorry, forty five years later. So. I I just think, and again, I don't have a problem with anybody who say who says Rice is better, but I have a problem if you don't think there's a discussion between Rice and Don Hudson. I love that. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, you know, I, I just think nobody at the wide receiver position dominated an era the way Hudson did. Right, and again, the the tricky part of this is the cross-era comparisons. It's something we all struggle with. Uh, we're all voters for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and that's a little bit of a struggle there too, especially uh, now with the way uh, the passing era has changed statistics, uh, which, uh, again, was a, was a, a way that, that Mike tried to uh, kind of overlook uh, some of the era differences and, and rate these receivers based on what they did in their own eras. So – Great. This Hudson thing's awesome because he and Jerry Rice are really the, they're really the two that led the league in wide res- in, in receiving yardage like six or seven or more times. It's really, even the, some of the great receivers don't do that very often, one or two times, sometimes never. But I just found in my notes from a conversation with Raymond Berry about 15 years ago, okay, about Don Hudson. And here's what he said. He said, when I was coaching with the Browns in 76 and 77, you could drive down to Canton in about an hour. He said, I called down there one day and said, I wanted to find film of Don Hudson playing. They said, Green Bay gave us all their films from a certain time period. We have them all right here. Raymond Berry said, of course, Raymond Berry, Hall of Fame wide receiver, former Patriots coach also said, I went down there and watched the films they had. And the film was excellent quality. It was on the old reels where they had 1600 feet of it on a single reel projectors, color film, got to watch Don Hudson. I'd never seen him, he said. He had great speed, great hands, about 6'1", 6'2". Looked like he weighed about 180, about Don Maynard size, lean, swift, and he could catch the heck out of it. They threw an awful lot of deep balls to him. He said, my impression of studying his numbers and adjusting it for the changes, still probably a combination of his catches, yards, touchdowns, I don't know if anyone has produced at that rate ever. And this was when kind of Randy Moss, when I I talked to Raymond Berry, Randy Moss was kind of at his peak with the 07 Patriots about then. He said, Jerry Rice is probably in there somewhere, but he played 16 game schedule. So that's greatness, recognizing greatness right there. If you know who Raymond Berry is. So I want to get into the quarterbacks a little bit. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about sort of, championships and how much that means to both of you because I think and and for those who don't know the three of us 
are on the Pro Football Hall of Fame selection committee. And one of the things that just my belief that we have done over the years is that we've gone too hog wild on uh, the Super Bowls, winning championships as the ultimate determining factor in who gets in the Hall of Fame. And I, I always think of, you know, look, when I first started watching football, I thought Tommy Nobis was Dick Butkus. Yeah, I, I, I thought they were kind of interchangeable. And again, I definitely will admit Butkus is better in history has judged him being better, rightfully so. But he was close. And it's hard for guys who play on bad teams to get the level of to get the level of respect that that these players do. But the other part of it, the other part of judging championships, I think is just the fact that in different eras, players are different. And a lot of people might say about Otto Graham, for instance, well, he only played 10 years. Well, when Otto Graham played, 10 years was a long career, okay? And now Peyton Manning plays whatever he played, 18, 19 years, and Brady plays 20-some-odd. And, and, and so it's just different. It's just different. So I think you have to judge guys by eras. Yeah. The one the one thing that really I think sticks out in my mind and why were I voting, I put I put Graham higher than eleven, is that he played ten years and he led his team to the championship seven times. And the other three times he lost the championship game. So he played the championship game ten years in a row. So I think he should have been yeah. a little higher, led his league in in passing four times out of out of the ten. But give me a thought or two about uh and, and it sounds silly to say this, about Unitas and Peyton Manning being ahead of uh of of uh, Otto Graham. You want to take it down well, or want me to? Yeah, sh- sure. I, you know, I think um Obviously, the championships have something to do with it. You can't ignore them completely. I always like to ask myself, though, you know, what would the player who did not win championships do if he were on the team that was winning all the championships at the time? For instance, if you switched Dan Marino with Joe Montana, you know, how many rings would would Dan Marino have? He might have more than Joe Montana. Now, we've got Marino uh, at 18 on our list. Um, Which Bill you know, Walsh wanted to get Marino when he had Montana, by the way, too. Yeah, well, and and you could say some people think Marino is the greatest passer of all time, and that you know I, yeah. I might be I might be one of them. So, um, you know, th- th- some of these judgments are just impossible to make. That's the bottom yeah. line. You know, we've yeah. got Dick Butkus on our list at number ten. Never played on a winning team in his life. Never played a playoff game. But again, as you said, Peter, how could you ignore the greatness? I think he's too low. Um, so. Yeah. You know, uh, you have to say, though, that somebody like Tom Brady winning all those championships, um, I, I don't know that if you if you changed places with him and almost any other quarterback from that era outside of Peyton Manning, uh, if they would have won near as many championships as he did with the New England Patriots and then with the Bucks. Yeah, I think the... Uh... The championship is more important to me with a quarterback because I think they have more 
uh, influence on winning the game, right? If you're a if you're a guard, you can be the best guard in the world, and it may not make your team win an extra game, right? But if you're a really good quarterback or a head coach, I think sometimes a championship could be a little bit more about you. That being said, we also have to adjust for these eras. Otto Graham played in 12 playoff games his whole career. There wasn't a wild card round, a divisional round, a championship round, a Super Bowl. So we get into this talking about the coaches from 50 years ago. Yeah, they won the championship. I'm thrilled for them. They played one game in the playoffs that year, and that won the championship. So if we had to do that and just play, you have a lot of guys with maybe more championships if you just had to win one game uh, to do it. Not to diminish it, but I think it is a difference for the eras and is worth noting for Otto Graham. I'm going to give you praise for four things on your list. Number one, I love the fact that you have Sammy Baugh at 25. Like a lot of people will say, man, that seems too high for Sammy Baugh because uh, he wasn't a constant title winner or anything. What I say to people about Sammy Baugh is I said, I think he had the greatest single season you know, in the, granted, it was in the war years in the 40s, but I think he had the greatest single season that any NFL player ever had. He led the NFL in passing, in punting, and he also played safety, and he led the NFL that season in interceptions. So wow. kudos to you for recognizing the guy who, in my opinion, had the greatest season ever of anybody. Number two, I'm glad you didn't let what happened to O.J. Simpson later in life uh, take him off your list. You have number, I think, 52. Um, And for everybody who would say, oh, O.J. Simpson, can't have him on any list, take him out of the Hall of Fame, I just will always say, did you see him play? And to me, O.J. Simpson, Gail Sayers, and Barry Sanders, the three most talented runners of all time, just incredible players. So I'm glad you did that. I'm glad you have Mahomes on the list because as much as I love history, even though you had only what, six years, maybe when you voted five years of Mahomes, but I mean, look, two Super Bowls already, he's 27, 28 years old, whatever he is, uh, clearly the best player in the sport right now. And I'm glad that you didn't let a, you know, a 35% resume, you know, keep him off the list. Because I would have said, you know, it's anybody who watches football knows that Patrick Mahomes is one of the 100 best players of all time. And the one other one that I really liked a lot was putting J.J. Watt 35 reason I like this, not necessarily just because he's won three defensive player of the years, players of the year. It's because he was so good at everything. He was a good tight end. And he was a good defensive tackle. He was Klecko. Good defensive tackle, good defensive end, can do it all. So those were four that jumped out to me that I thought you guys really got right. Well, let me say this. I'll I'll talk about one of those. and Maybe Mike wants to talk about one too, but uh, Sammy Baugh at 25, he was, in addition to being a heck of a defensive back and punter, was considered the greatest passer of all time up to his time and, and the greatest yeah. passer of his era, even though 
you know, he was losing championships to, to Sid Luckman, but he was still acknowledged as the greatest passer. And of course they were uh, playing a different game back then, you know, but, but he was, uh, he was truly special. And, you know, you might've made the argument that he could be even higher than, than 25. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the thing that I'll add is that, you know, we did have a, we wrote a column afterwards where we listed 10 people that we could have, would have maybe liked to have had on the list. And you say, well, you could have put them on there, but then we would have to take someone else off and those people would be on our waiting list. So I wanted to give the people those Derek Thomas, Larry Fitzgerald, Jim Kelly, Doug Atkins, Troy Aikman, Ernie Stoutner, Rosie Brown, Ken Houston, Randall McDaniel, and Emlyn Tunnell. So those were 10. I mentioned Travis Kelsey. I think there's some other ones on there. Um, I think Tell me this, I think, Mike, as long as you you mention Fitzgerald, he is the biggest person. He's the person who's not on this list that I think is the biggest omission. And I would, in my opinion, he's a better football player than Julio Jones uh, in his career. But I don't I don't uh, think Julio so, Jones is a bad pick for this list. But tell me why no Larry yeah. Fitzgerald. Yeah, well, I, you know how when we get down to the Hall of Fame voting and sometimes we have three great receivers and none of them make it in? I feel like there's a little bit of a log jam of receivers that all could, like like to me, James Lofton's very underrated. I think he had a great career and could easily be on there. I've told yeah. you in our previous conversation, Torrey Holt's production is unbelievable. Larry Fitzgerald may, I, I mean, if I had to psychoanalyze, does if we were doing this list in his 12th year, does he make it? Cause he sort of had these last five or six years that were kind of tacked on to the end, but he was unbelievable when he was really dominant. I mean, he, he was dominant in the playoffs. He was dominant regular season. So I have no argument against him other than we put nine receivers on. And I think he would have been in a group of, of a few other guys at that position that you could make a really good case for. I, I think if, if we, if I had a do over, I would have liked to have included him. And, you know, that's the thing about these lists is that if you look back at it, you know, you look back at it 10 times, 10 times, you'd want to change something. Um, Fitzgerald though, you know, he's second to Jerry Rice in many, many categories, played in 11 Pro Bowls. Uh, unlike Rice did not play with, Steve Young and Joe Montana. Now he did play with Kurt Warner uh, for. He did play short... with Max Hall. Oh yeah, John exactly. Skelton. Don't forget well, Skelton. He, the, the point being that you guys are making is that he played a lot of his career with quarterbacks who were not discussed for this book. Uh, so um, you know that that's another tribute to him. You wonder what he might have done if he played his whole career with uh, a great quarterback or, or a lot of his career. Yeah, Peter and I biggest... went back and forth and got really nasty with each other. I'm kidding. Over this, we had a nice little debate off to the off to the side. In my experience of analyzing stats of receivers and production, I find a vast majority of the time that the great receiver gets his numbers anyway. And a recent example was, you know, Devonta Adams had those amazing years in Green Bay, and he went to the Raiders last year, and they were so they were so unhappy with Derek Carr that they sat him down on purpose. You can't tell Devonta Adams' numbers from last year from any other year; they were all great. And so I tend to think we get into some of these things like 
well, this guy didn't have another great receiver on the other side to take away coverages, or this guy did, or this guy had Peyton Manning. I think for the most part, the great receivers over the course of their career will produce. Isaac Bruce is a good example, too. His best season was in like 1994-95. He had like 1,800 yards. You know who his quarterback was? No. Was it Kurt Warner? No. So I do think that those guys get do get their numbers. And I've just found that you can find if it's super horrendous quarterback play. Yes. I think that that could do it, but that's, that's usually an off a one-off year, not your whole career. Thing about <clears throat> the thing about uh, Fitzgerald is that, and I was around him a lot in his career. I'm sure you guys were too, but the thing about Fitzgerald is that here's a guy who missed nine games in 17 years even though he was in most games he played easily the number one focus of the defense. Uh, And, uh, you know, that he was going to get the most attention. And the other thing I think about Fitzgerald is even though everybody knew the ball was going to come to him, you know, here's a guy who still had eight years of over 90 catches. I just think yep. he is, you know, yep. at one point, at one point, I used to have this conversation, are you going to play long enough to beat Jerry Rice? You got to, you know, and look, I don't think he ever set that as his focus because he used to tell me that, no, he's a number one. He's got to be the top of the list. Yeah. But I will tell you this, if he had better quarterbacks in the middle of his career, particularly when he was great and was catching 71 or 65 balls or whatever. I, he would have gotten close. He really would have gotten close. I just, I have great admiration for his career and his play. He's the one guy I really thought yeah. should be on here. And wasn't just a pass catcher. I mean, this guy was a willing blocker, ferocious. He loved the game. He sold out. He took amazing hits. I mean, he kind of spanned that era too, a little (laughs) bit where a little bit where it was riskier to play that position. Peter, come over the middle. This guy stuck his nose in there and just got. I mean, he would just get smashed. I can because I can remember covering. I covered the NFC West there for a period in the late two thousands and early two thousand tens, and. And I can remember him coming up against those Seattle defenses that started to have like Cam Chancellor and those types of guys. They'd knock your head off. He would be up in one second. It was like, it didn't matter how hard you hit this guy. He would pop up and then smack the guy on the butt. Like, Hey, good job. Let's go. I mean, it's unbelievable, like a playing spirit uh, of him. So I'm with you. Let's go back to the publisher. Let's put him on there. We only had nine wide receivers. on. I'm not (laughs) arguing against Larry. Hey, listen, Hey, Mike, Mike, let's do, the football one one hundred one. <laughs> I, I was going to say, you know, you're going to put them on, Mike. Who are we taking off? Because we got another fight on, on our hands. There. I know. I know. Hey, to run into. I want to. I want to finish this by asking you both. So the way the book is, you have essays on all hundred guys, and a lot of different people wrote the essays, but you guys wrote a lot of them. I want to ask you. And Dan, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to ask you both. Give me a story about a player who you wrote about that maybe you found out in research, a story that you didn't know and blew you away about a player. Or or give me a player who you really learned a lot about 
who you gained a lot more respect for? Uh, that's a tough question. Uh, obviously, there were a number of these guys who we wrote about. Um, I'll, I'll go back to Sammy Baugh, and, and this really um, – I don't know that it's so much about him as a player, but I didn't know that he was this great character, and he was a cowboy, and they yeah. marketed him as a cowboy. And he did commercials as this cowboy, and uh, he he really kind of uh, made a, a side living off of that, ended up being an actual cowboy – going back to uh, his home in, in Texas and being a rancher for many years. And, um, you know, I, I think uh, he's the kind of character that you really don't see in the NFL anymore. I'll tell you, the most fun I had was Leo Namalini, great defensive lineman for the 49ers going back into the 50s. Uh, real humble means he came up, he was in the Marine Corps. In fact, I think he was on a Marine Corps football team with Ernie Stoutner. You can imagine that. But what was so fun about there's two things really fun. One, I started doing this research and I went into like uh, war records and was just learning about his past. I ended up connecting with his children and I found some things about him and, and his history of service that they didn't know about. And that was wow. very touching and emotional. And I've gotten to know them a little bit. And so that was very rewarding. The other thing was you think, Leo Namalini, who do we know that would have played with Leo Namalini? I started looking at that and I thought, Shoot, Bud Grant was his teammate. Bud was alive, and Bud Grant was his teammate uh, at Minnesota. So I, I decided, you know what? I'm going to call Bud Grant. And Bud Grant, right up until his final days, was sharp as a tack. I mean, you couldn't tell if you were talking to Bud Grant in 1975, 85, 95. He's the same guy. So yeah. I thought, how cool is this? I'm going to talk to one of Leo's teammates. You know, And so he said, I would put him there with Walter Payton and Chuck Bednarik, among the players I've seen or gone against. And so to me, that was goosebumps. And then another kind of, if you know about Bud Grant, he won a championship with the George Mike and Lakers as a player too. So yeah, Bud Grant, yeah, yeah. At Bud Grant as a player in the NFL had a 200 yard receiving game. Okay. As a coach in the NFL hall of famer, four Super Bowls with the Vikings. And then, Oh, by the way, he won a championship as an NBA player. So I used that opportunity to ask him uh, about basketball players and who's, who's the greatest. And did you, you know, I said it was was Wilt, you know, was Wilt the best or whatever. And he goes, I'm going to tell you who the toughest player I ever played with or saw in basketball. And he, we had a 10-minute discussion about George Mike, and he played with George Mike, yeah. and there's somebody like the, <laughs> like the autogram of basketball, right? Yeah. I mean, everyone's like yeah. George Mike in that era. So the, the Nomalini conversations and research was, to me, by far the most interesting of anything I did. That is so great. Well, look, now you know what you guys have to do. You have to do the football 50. You've got to have the 50 <laughs> coaches. Or say say the football 25 to make it a little bit uh, more exclusive, to have the, yeah. the 25 best coaches. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. It would be fun. Uh, I, I get. I, who's number one, Mike? <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, well, Paul you, Brown. You, yeah, I was going to say Paul Brown or, or Hallis, but probably Paul Brown because of all the innovations, right? You have to put the innovations yeah. on top of of just sometimes you're, when you're the first, you you know, you're earlier, you discover things. But I think he probably had the biggest impact on the game, wouldn't you say, Peter? I got to I, I got to say this, though. We, we have to give Belichick his respect as a guy who won in this era. Yeah, it's harder to win today because there's just more teams. Uh, again, it's we're, harder. We're, right. we're judging people based on different different things right 
Yeah. I think I think the reason and look, um, Belichick has talked about his incredible affection for for Paul Brown. Um, and in many ways, Paul Brown was kind of Bill. Look, Bill's father, Steve Belichick, was his idol, you know, an assistant coach at the Naval Academy, wrote the first book ever on football scouting in the 50s. Paul Brown wrote the foreword for it. I mean, so, but I think Belichick would tell you that the innovations of Paul Brown, the fact that he basically started a franchise in Cleveland and in year five of that franchise, in their first game ever in the NFL, they were set up as, you know, lackeys to go to Philadelphia for the first game of the 1950 season. It was going to be, you know, year five of uh, the Cleveland Browns. And so uh, they, they all think, uh, you know, the commissioner of the NFL, they set up this this game, Cleveland at Philadelphia. It's at Franklin Field, 71,000 people on a Saturday night, opening game of the 1950 season, defending champion Eagles. I forget the final score was something like 35 to 7 Browns. And I just always have thought that if you want to judge a franchise or a coach on one game, Paul Brown knew that they were supposed to be the Washington Generals that night. He knew that. And he went in and he said, screw that. We're going to win this game. We're better. And they killed him. And so I don't know. Look. Anybody has a good argument for any of these coaches we're talking about. Hallis, uh, you know, Shula and Belichick and all that. I get it. Lombardi. Uh, Don't forget Lombardi. Yeah. Yeah, Lombardi. Sorry. Yeah. But here's an interesting one for you. If when Brady left the Patriots, if Brady had just fallen on his face and never won anything and Bill won another one, would you be saying he's number one? Uh, Well... I don't think so because of, look, Mike, you know how we're all kind of victims of our history and what we've all been, what we've all seen. In 1984, I'm covering the Cincinnati Bengals. It's training camp in Wilmington, Ohio. And every day they practiced from nine in the morning till 11. And then again, from three to five. I was at every practice in training camp. You know who else was? Paul Brown with a gigantic uh, hat to cover him because he was fair skinned and he respected the sun. And I, I bet I watched 30 football practices standing next to Paul Brown. Biggest wow. regret of my career is that I never went in after every one of those practices and just wrote down everything he said. Because he talked, he taught me a lot about football. But but anyway, the only reason I mention that is that it's hard for me to think of anybody else as the greatest coach ever because I know his history and I know his history not only of winning and losing, but of being an innovator. And And so that's why I would say Paul Brown and look, Bill Belichick is absolutely outstanding in all ways. I get it. And I'm not going to give you a but because you could say no. the same thing about Otto Graham. 
you know, but well, Paul Brown had Otto Graham. I, I don't yeah, give yeah. you a butt. He's I absolutely coming, yeah. outstanding. I was coming at you from another angle. How much does the before and after Brady for Belichick affect your view of, of him and where you might rank him? Is That's the interesting thing. because we're kind You know of what, Mike? The, Mike, I've never been one of those people. Look. Yeah, I want to know. Re- uh, as we record this, as we record this, Bill Belichick is seven games under 500 without Tom Brady since he walked off campus. I think it's 27 and 34 as we record this. And it's yeah. going to get worse. But <laughs> But <clears> – <throat> I don't think that that diminishes how good a coach Bill Belichick is for this reason, for this reason. As much as Joe Montana boosted Bill Walsh, Bill Walsh boosted Joe Montana as well. As much as uh, Tom Brady boosted Bill Belichick, Brady will tell you. And look, I've had these conversations with Brady some of them far off the record, but but I can tell you, I can tell you this, absolutely honestly, did he have some moments with Belichick? Unequivocally. Did he, is, he, is he in love with him? Not particularly. However, however, Tom Brady will tell you all day and all night that that guy's a great coach. He helped me every day. And, and of course, every great people, at any job are going to have issues with each other at some point. But in my opinion, Tom Brady will be in the front row when Bill Belichick goes into Canton and afterwards they'll have a 15 second hug and it won't be phony. Yeah. And and not, not many quarterbacks and their head coaches, I would say are, all kumbaya and great. We love that's each other. Right. I mean, that's, that's right. You know, you go back in history, almost every one of them have butted heads. Oh yeah. There's some, there's some scar tissue. Hey, Bill Walsh traded Montana. You think he was happy with him? No, <laughs> Absolutely. He was looking at Steve Young. I told you, you know, people that knew him, he, he was dazzled by Marino. Like, you know, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> they hey, bitched Joe hey, Montana. Hey, Mike, 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 Bill Walsh, told me this. He goes, you know, when Phil Sims came out in the draft, he loved him, you know, and he wanted Phil Sims from Moorhead State. <laughs> so good. Uh, it's so great. Good. Hey, listen, um, we are going to talk all day, or we were going to talk all day, but uh, we all also have lives to live. So <laughs> I really appreciate you guys joining me on the podcast. We'll be writing about this in my column at some point soon and, and uh, right. much, much appreciated. I know that this had to be a labor of love for your guys and you, you guys, and you did a really good job. Thank you, Thank Peter. You. It's our pleasure to join you. My thanks to uh, Mike Sando, Dan Pompey, really interesting discussion. I think you'll enjoy this book. It isn't just a ranking of the players. It basically is a deep dive into these players it's a thick book it'll take you a while very interesting essays on each of the players in that ranking so miles simmons thanks so much for joining me this week for co-hosting with me this week and uh, for being a great partner for this podcast and thanks everybody for watching listening experience we'll be back next next week with another episode of the peter king podcast Thank you. 
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.